Welcome back to this limited edition of Living with the End in Mind, the COVID Conversations. I'm Kathy Warzer. We're talking to various experts about end-of-life planning against the backdrop of the coronavirus pandemic. But we're also having more philosophical conversations around the uncertainty of our lives in this time of change. Now, during the last episode, I talked with an emergency room doctor who really underscored the importance of knowing what you want for healthcare if you're really sick and can't speak for yourself. You've heard the horrible, nightmare stories of patients in this pandemic going by themselves into an ER and quickly being admitted to an ICU and then going swiftly downhill. It highlights the importance of advanced care directives. Today, our guests are Professor Thaddeus Pope, who is the director of the Health Law Institute at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota, and Art Kaplan, a professor of bioethics at the New York University School of Medicine, who served in the same capacity for years at the University of Minnesota. Professor Pope tells me COVID-19 is sparking a paradigm shift in the American medical system. We are thinking more about things that we probably already should have been thinking about. So in terms of advanced care planning and end-of-life planning, death seems a little bit more imminent or more likely now. And so we're thinking about how to plan for end-of-life medical treatment more in the past few weeks than we normally do. There's always a natural will to live, right? And medical professionals are trained to keep patients alive. And there's all this attention being paid to the use of ventilators in this pandemic. And now we're learning that, to the surprise of doctors, up to a third of really sick patients in ICUs need dialysis because their kidneys are being affected. Do you think, Professor, that the public really understands the effects of these interventions? No, it's unfortunate that We have a big focus on doing advanced directives, completing advanced directives, but unfortunately, I don't think we spend as much time on making sure that the choices and preferences that are recorded on the advanced directive are actually informed and understood and that they really reflect the patient's preferences. So unfortunately, it becomes sort of a numbers game, right? Can we increase the percent of people completing advanced directives? but we focus less on the quality of the advanced directives and we focus more on the quantity of advanced directives that are completed. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that there's this question about triage, right? We're in the midst of a public health emergency. So let's talk about that delicate dance that some hospitals are already experiencing, the triage protocols. Who makes those decisions? So I'm not sure that we've implemented the triage protocols yet. We've written them, right? In case there's a surge situation that there's more patients that need ventilators than there are ventilators. But who writes them? So each system is writing their own. There's some coordination across systems. And who exactly is that's writing the plan will vary from system to system. I think generally they're they're multi-professional. They're multi-professional programs. So they'll have doctors, ethicists, nurses, chaplains, you know, so there's a lot of different representation of different perspectives, but they're not identical, you know, from place to place. So it's typically a point system, right? So if you're, I'll just paraphrase, generally, if you're younger and healthier, you'll get more points because it's more likely, A, that the ventilator will work for you and that will save more life years by giving it to you as opposed to somebody who's very, very old and already very, very sick. Art Kaplan, a bioethics professor with New York University's medical school, weighs in on how triage decisions are being made. Well, let me tell you the real down-to-earth 
nitty-gritty pattern of what's going to happen should it get to Minnesota or the Twin Cities. First, the first rationing is not the hospital. It's the first responders. If they get overwhelmed with calls, if their workforce is devastated because they're sick and out, they're going to have to triage who they respond to. So I'll make a hypothetical. Let's say you're living in St. Paul and you're in a fourth floor walk-up and you weigh 450 pounds, and it turns out that they only have a two-man crew to handle calls rather than the four that it would take to get you down the stairs, there's going to be some triage. Let's say you're somebody who says, I'm pretty sick and I don't really want aggressive care. You may want to tell not the doctor, but the police or the fireman who shows up to try and bring you to the hospital. So to be clear, the first aspects of triage, which aren't getting national attention as much as they should, is who makes it to get considered at the emergency room. Once you're there, there are decisions made, depending on whether you're infected or how acutely ill you are, about where to send you. If you're just having a heart attack and there are beds around and there are people to care for you, then things will proceed as normal. But if there's really a crunch and you're 89 years old and having your fifth heart attack, and there's somebody there who might do better because they're 30 and don't have any underlying conditions, then you might wind up not getting into a hospital, even though under normal conditions you would. And I know that's horrible to hear, but that could happen. And then just to add more misery here, even if you're admitted, even if you make it through a triage scenario where there's too many people to be handled, there's going to be decisions made in the ICU when you're on a ventilator and intubated or on dialysis, another piece of equipment that people need that is potentially in short supply. And there the doctor may say, you're spiraling out. I can predict this. You're a 30-year-old who had damaged lungs from vaping and we gave you a try, but you're not doing well. You're going to die. I'm sure of it. They may stop caring for you more quickly than they would under normal circumstances. They don't give you that one in 10,000 chance because they want to free the bed. So triage, rationing is occurring at multiple levels when we get into a crisis. Who gets to the hospital? Who gets picked to go into the facility, depending on personnel and resources? And I'm going to say the biology and physiology of the candidates, not just their age, but are they likely to benefit? And then how well are you doing if we give you the resources and you don't flourish and it looks like you're really not going to make it, and good ICU personnel know this, then perhaps stopping sooner and moving you to palliative care. Do you think some of these patients, though, are capital, are getting palliative care? I hope they all are. Another resource we hope we don't have to ration is palliative care. You know, people say to me, what's a psychologist, psychiatrist, a chaplain going to do? They'll be busier than ever. Those are the people that have to support families who may have been told your loved one is way too sick. We're not putting them in the ICU. They can't make it. People like that are going to have to be there to support the staff. You know, I've been doing rationing policy for decades. Started doing it at the University of Minnesota at the old transplant program when we had to decide life and death and make up rules. And I helped make up those rules that govern the system. I'm a little bit more familiar. I don't want to say I'm hard-hearted, but I'm more familiar with the fact that rationing occurs in some aspects of healthcare. Most healthcare workers are not. Most nurses are not. Most social workers are not. They don't ration. The big problem has been in our system overuse, right? People getting things when it seems beyond reason that we should have stopped. So they're going to need emotional support. They're going to need help. And obviously the families of people who die, they're going to need help too. I'll even tell you, it'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, there are 10 states that have legalized physician-assisted dying. Near me is New Jersey. Will that be selected more? People saying, I don't want palliative care. If you don't pick me, 
then please let me go. I don't know. But it's something I'm starting to think about because we have that in California, New Jersey, Washington State, Oregon, why many jurisdictions in the U.S., Washington, D.C. So that's another unprecedented kind of a challenge. Supposing I have an advanced care directive that says, I'm struggling, my life is in the balance, give me the works, right? Does this pandemic put limitations on individual rights and preferences that are spelled out in an advanced care directive? Yes, uh, it may, because the idea of a triage plan is if we don't have enough resource for, for everyone, then we will decline services or procedures or technology to you, even if you want it. Triage and rationing stand that on its head. There's going to be less autonomy, less discussion, and less discretion about what you want. And what I mean is you may fill out a living will. Most people think you fill it out and say, boy, if I really get bad, let me go. Some people fill it out and say, I really want everything. Push to the end, I I want that. Or their relatives are saying that. If you're in triage and someone makes a decision to let you go, in some contexts, you may not even understand that they did until later. That is, they'll make the decision rapidly. And your living will, if it's more on the, I want the resources, I don't think it's going to be honored. If it's really a triage time and they've either got to decide are you coming in or they're going to stop caring for you maybe a little sooner than they would have to free up a bed if you're not doing well, that's a different situation for advanced directives and living wills than we ever had. Professor Thaddeus Pope agrees with our Kaplan. That happens in a non-pandemic situation as well. There are people who show up at Twin Cities hospitals who want very aggressive interventions despite being catastrophically ill. And in many, many systems in Minnesota will not honor the advanced directive because they think what the patient is asking for is non-beneficial or sometimes we use the word futile. Here, it may not be that it won't work. It's just that it won't work as well for you as it will for somebody else. And we only have one ventilator left. So the idea is, yes, that some advanced directives, if they request aggressive interventions, may not be honored. I think the good news is most patients who are very, very ill actually don't want aggressive interventions. We have lots and lots of evidence to show that most of those people would prioritize comfort over prolongation of life. And what we're seeing happily actually is, this is my word, I made it up, but we're seeing what you might call an altruism advanced directive, which is people are saying sort of the opposite of the situation you just portrayed, which is I'm very, very old, I'm very, very sick. Ventilator is probably not gonna work for me or produce much benefit for me. Give it to somebody who's younger and healthier. And so you see in the media over the past few weeks, a lot of people writing special advanced directives or adding special addendums to their advanced directives to say that, to say, give it to somebody else. Mm. There is an advanced care directive versus order for treatment. Two different things, right? So every adult in Minnesota should have an advanced health care directive which is two things. It's a two-part document. Very, very simple to complete. You don't need a lawyer. You can do it right now at home. It appoints somebody else to make decisions for you should you lose capacity. We call that person your agent. And if you want, you can also list some specific healthcare preferences, things you want or don't want. 
The other thing, what we call a pulsed or provider orders for life-sustaining treatment is not for everybody. It's just for people who are seriously ill. People who, and we often use the surprise question, which is a pulsed is for people who the doctor would not be surprised if they died in the next year or two. So it's for people who are already very frail or very seriously ill. The difference between a pulsed and advanced directive is an advanced directive just records, again, who it is that you want to speak for you when you can't speak for yourself, and it records your wishes. A pulsed is a medical order set. That's what the O stands for in pulsed, P-O-L-S-T. And the advantage of a pulsed is it's immediately actionable, meaning we don't need to translate your advanced directive into medical orders. We already have a set of medical orders. And the advantage there is, for example, if you had a breathing difficulty in something, some people called 911, they come to your house, EMS providers can honor a pulsed, but they can't honor an advanced directive. They follow orders, and an advanced directive is not orders, but a pulsed is. In urgent situations, people can follow a pulsed while they can't follow an advanced directive. They probably won't follow an advanced directive, not because they're ignoring it, because in an EMS situation or even in an emergency department situation, they don't have time to read it, figure out what you want, and then figure out what orders to write based on it. So the the presumption in U.S. healthcare is we will do everything to keep you alive as long as possible. We'll transport you, we'll work you up. And the idea is a pulse will get you off that conveyor belt more effectively than an advanced directive. As a person who deeply thinks about our healthcare system, do you see our system changing from that paradigm, from that how we used to operate a little bit differently once this pandemic ends? operating differently in the sense of presume that uh, we'll keep you alive as long as technologically possible. So that's a great question. Um, I doubt it because we've been talking about that for a long time. So just to give an easy example here, the main example that comes up in this context is our DNR orders. Yes. Do not resuscitate. And it is odd that in all of U.S. medicine, This is the one thing that you have to consent not to have, right? Generally, no matter what your medical needs, nobody can do things to you unless you consent or somebody who's authorized to consents on your behalf, whether it's a blood transfusion, whether it's mechanical ventilation, whether whatever it is. Um, But if your heart stops, you will get CPR unless you tell us not to. So it's the, it's the, it's the opposite. It's weird that it's the one thing you have to opt out of instead of opt into And we've talked for a long time in health law, in bioethics, in health policy, that we should flip that back because at least for people who are already hospital inpatients, CPR probably isn't going to work. It has a very low success rate for people who are already very sick. And therefore, to have the presumption that we will do CPR is producing bad results because it's not going to work most of the time. So why not flip the presumption and just allow the small, small number of people who are what you might call vitalists to opt into CPR? Right. Interesting. But we haven't done it. We haven't done it. And therefore, the idea that the pandemic is going to is going to cause us to rethink something that we've been thinking about for decades and haven't moved on, it seems unlikely we're going to move on it now. Do you see any big changes coming out of this horrible situation that we have? We're learning an awful lot, obviously. We've learned a lot the past few weeks. I'm sure we're going to learn even more in the next few weeks here. But do you see any lasting changes in terms of protocols and anything that you're looking at? 
That's a great question. I do think that there are silver linings, right? I do think that once somebody does the research, we will find that advanced care planning has increased tremendously. Over time, you hear these numbers repeated again and again by the big research companies like Pew and ARP that only, you know, 20, 30% of the American public has an advanced directive. I strongly suspect that if those same studies are performed in the same way sometime, let's say in early 2021, we'll find that there's a material increase in advanced care planning. And I think that would be a great silver lining benefit of the pandemic because we know through mountains of empirical evidence that most people don't want aggressive interventions in the face of serious illness, but nevertheless, that's what they're going to get unless they tell us otherwise. So the idea that more people do advanced care planning means that we'll be producing fewer of those errors. We'll be providing less unwanted medical treatment, and that will have two big benefits. One is it means that more of the care that we provide will be value concordant, right? It will be care that people actually want. And secondly, it'll save a whole bunch of money. You know, I'm sure there'll be people listening to this thinking, okay, pretty interesting. There's a lot to think about here. Oh my gosh. What's your advice to someone as they start down the path of trying to write an advanced care directive? So first, the good news is there are lots of great tools out there. We have an organization right here in Minnesota called Honoring Choices Minnesota, And they collect a lot of their own tools, but they also collect tools from others like the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization and and others. So I think that the things to do are to look around and see which kinds of tools speak to you, because some are paper focused. There's videos. Some are sort of app driven, which sort of they guide you along on the screen. It could be an iPad or an iPhone. So the main thing I think is this. You need to inform yourself about what the choices are. And the good news is there are some really good patient decision aids. So, for example, what does it mean to be on a mechanical ventilator? What would my chances of getting off the ventilator be? And there are some good tools, often video-based, that help explain these in very easy-to-understand terms. So you have to understand what your options are. You have to determine what your wishes and preferences are. And here's the, and this is the part, the third part, I think, is where people really drop the ball, which is once you figure out what your wishes and preferences are, You need to communicate them. And that means not just completing an advanced directive. You need to talk to the person who you're appointing as your agent and perhaps also the person who you're appointing as your alternate agent in case your agent's not available. And you need to make copies of the advanced directive and give copies to your agent and ideally scan them into your electronic health record with whatever system you're with. Because many, many times people show up at hospitals And hospitals are legally required to ask you, do you have an advanced directive? Or they ask the spouse, does does he have an advanced directive? And they say, yeah. Okay, well, where is it? Well, I don't know. So it's unfortunate that people sometimes take the time to actually think about what they want and don't want, complete an advanced directive, but then we can't find it when it's actually needed. So inform yourself, record your wishes and preferences, and communicate them both in writing and through discussions with your family. Good advice. Good advice. I bet you have an advanced care directive. So do I. And I'm just thinking, gosh, 
I should probably look at it and maybe do some quick changes. Can I do that on my own? Do I need an attorney to help me? So you do not need an attorney. You should review it. We normally call it the five D's. You should review your advanced directive every decade. Um, I hope I can remember all five D's. When there's a death of somebody close to you, in the case of a divorce, because oftentimes people would have had their spouse be their agent, and you might want to reconsider that if there had been a divorce. Good point. A new diagnosis, then you become sicker than you were. You might want to rethink it. I'm going to forget what the fifth D is. But anyway, those are triggers. So you absolutely should reconsider it periodically. Maybe just to summarize the five Ds, whenever there's been a big major change in your life. The nice thing about advanced directives is you do not need any type of legal professional or healthcare professional. You can print it off right now at home. And in Minnesota, you can either have it witnessed, which just means, you know, two neighbors, for example. Normally, it can't be the people you're appointing as the agent. They can't witness their own appointment as agent, but you could use somebody maybe nearby or it could be notarized. And Minnesota actually last year passed a law which allows remote notarization. So maybe the place you might normally go to get something notarized, like a UPS store or something like that, is closed, but notaries can do this remotely. So they can watch you sign on the video and notarize it remotely. So there's ways to update or complete an advanced directive, even during COVID-19, when it may be hard to get the requisite signatures. As you were talking, I did look up the five Ds. You're right. It's decade, death, divorce, diagnosis, and decline. 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 (laughs) Which is tricky. That's why I didn't remember it, because decline, it seems like diagnosis in the sense that it means that your your health condition has changed. So those two might overlap a little bit. If you're declining or deteriorating, you know, you might want to rethink. Makes sense, of course. Doc, do you happen to have one, by the way? Did you change yours at all? Did I change it because of the pandemic? Yeah. Just curious. No, because, um, well, frankly, it's because, I mean, I'm, I'm relatively healthy, so it wouldn't change, right? In other words, my chances, based on looking at the, uh, the data, only 5% of people are going to suffer a critical illness because of COVID-19, and maybe half of the 5% die. But my own estimations <laughs> looking at this put me that I'm not in the 5%, in which case, I would, if I can be saved, if I need some oxygen therapy or even mechanical ventilation, that I would want it because it seems that I would be able to recover and get back off it. Sure. Professor Pope, I really appreciate your time here today. Thank you so very much. Thanks for having me. That's Professor Thaddeus Pope, who's the director of the Health Law Institute at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota and Art Kaplan, a professor of bioethics at the New York University School of Medicine. By the way, our condolences to Art Kaplan on the death of his mother. She was 96 years old and died of COVID-19 in an East Coast nursing home. Professor Pope mentioned Honoring Choices Minnesota, which has forms for health care directives on their website. The Minnesota Medical Association has an updated COVID-19 guide for people who want a provider order for life-sustaining treatment, or PULSED. Other really good resources include the California-based group Prepare for Your Care. This has been Living with the End in Mind, the COVID Conversations. I'm Kathy Warzer. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay curious. Stay curious.